Our next speaker is uh, John Metter. John is from the Dallas-Fort Worth area and has been a pastor uh, there for several years. Uh, the thing that I love about John is that John has such a heart for the local church, and his dad is a pastor still at 86 85. years old, 85. Uh, man, and so there is a legacy before him that he's going to have a hard time keeping up with, it sounds. But uh, we just appreciate him coming. And he has an incredible heart for evangelism. So we've, we've asked him to talk today and bring from God's word a message that would inspire us to be more evangelistic. So, John, would you come and preach for us, please? Thank you so much, Doug. Great to be with you. It really is beautiful. I expected snowfall. I expected uh, all kinds of cold weather. I packed a coat. And uh, none of that is as applicable. Doug picked me up at the airport in shorts, and I thought, what is going on here? But in Texas, we have no idea what this place is up here. We just don't know. And uh, so I'm getting to know it well. Great to see you. And I appreciate Doug so much and his wife. Uh, they were in Pampa, Texas before they sensed the call to spearfish. And um, we uh, kind of watched them walk through that process. We're amazed at how he had heard God call him to plant that church, thrilled with what's happening with that church. And uh, Doug's a good friend of mine. Hey, listen, I need to tell you some things about myself before I dive into the text here. By the way, if you have your Bibles, take them and turn to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be looking at some stuff in Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35 uh, in just a few minutes. Uh, some of you will talk to me and notice that I have hearing aids, and I want you to know the story behind that. I am legally deaf. I am profoundly deaf. Uh, the word profound in, in deafness means simply that you can't hear hardly anything at all. And I've said to people over the years, I'm not profound at many things, so if I'm going to be profound at deafness, I'm going to just take it, okay? But that means I don't hear well. Uh, it means I read lips. And that means if you whisper to your neighbor when I'm preaching, I'll know exactly what you say when I'm preaching. <laughs> so you need to be careful, especially if it's a commentary about the message today. But God's given me a grace. He's given me the ability to do what I need to do. That's true of all of us. We all have something that we would change if we could, right? We all have something that we would uh, kind of modify or tune a little bit. And my hearing is the thing that I would tune or that I would modify or that I would change. But God gives me all the grace I need to do all that he calls me to do, and he does that with every single one of us. And I'm, I'm grateful to be able to say that every week, week in and week out, God gives the grace that we need to do the thing that we need to do. Uh, listen, I pastor First Baptist Church, Utah. Uh, one of our speakers today, Eric, uh, his father pastored that before I was there. I think you were already uh, in college, seminary, already gone kind of. Uh, did a phenomenal job there at First Julius. It's a great church. God is uh, blessed in many, many great ways. Uh, I'm thrilled to be a part of that church and a part of the movement there. Uh, but I'm a regular guy. I'm just like you. I mean, I'm, I'm someone that is just placed in a certain place at a certain time just by God's placement. That's who we all are. My dad was a pioneer pastor, what we used to call a pioneer pastor in Salt Lake City, Provo, Utah. Pastored First Baptist Church. Provo, Utah for 11 years. And it was one of those incredible experiences where they were about the only people who believed in Jesus the way we understand we are to believe in Jesus in that whole region during that time. And they had some incredible experiences and he's uh, lived through it, continues to pastor in Phoenix, Arizona. But I'm just a regular guy. I'm passionate about the same kind of things that you probably are. When I saw the sign that you have for your state convention uh, that's outside and I saw the pickup truck at the bottom of that picture scene. You mean that pickup truck you saw on that scene? That pickup truck looks just like one of my trucks that I drive all the time. I'm a truck and a gun kind of guy. If the zombie apocalypse happens, come to my house, you'll be just fine. I promise you that. I'm a guy that loves to hunt, loves to fish, uh, loves four-wheel drive trucks. 
just a regular guy. I put a sedan on when I have to go to church. I put a suit on sometimes when I go to church, but I'm just a regular kind of guy, and experiencing uh, this with you is going to be a great event. Loving being with you this week. Let me just talk to you about some things that, um, that I'm passionate about and some things that I believe are passions that are passed on from Jesus. I want to talk to you about what I call ascending going passion, ascending going passion. It's that kind of passion that moves someone like a Doug Hickson to move from Pampa, Texas to where he is now. It's that kind of passion that moves you to be where you are, that moves you to do what you believe Jesus is calling you to do. When, when someone else would say, that's not good advice, that's not a good position for you to be in, or that's not a good place for you to be in, ascending going passion is the kind of passion that really crystallizes the hope of changing the world from wherever God places you. And it's that kind of passion that Jesus demonstrated in Matthew chapter 9 as he trains his disciples. Let me just read a few verses beginning in chapter 9, verse 35. And it goes like this. Jesus was going through all the villages and cities, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. I'm going to read that last line again, verse 35. Therefore, or verse 38, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. When I talk about passion, when I think about the passion of Jesus Christ, a line comes to mind, a statement comes to mind, and here's the statement. Passion is a comprehensive, compelling concern for people that results in action. Listen to me. Passion is not a feeling. Passion is not something that just stirs me up emotionally and causes tears to come to my eyes. Passion, biblically speaking, results in real action. It means that I'm so moved by something or someone or some circumstance or situation, or I moved inwardly in such a powerful way that my life is not the same as it was before I had that passion. Jesus exemplifies an incredible passion and compassion for people. And I want to demonstrate what Jesus is saying in this text and what he's equipping us to do. And I want you to look, as we begin in this text, all the way back to verse 35, Jesus was going. Do you notice those first few lines? Jesus was going, verse 35. You know, it's amazing today that when we do church, we don't do it like Jesus laid the foundation down for us to do. We don't often go. We often come, and we often gather. And gathering's a big part of what we do as we bring a congregation together, as we encourage and preach to them, as we pray over them, as we equip them. But Jesus, the Bible says, was going from village to village. He was in movement, and he was in movement because of a passion in his heart and a passion in his life. And what's unfolding here is Jesus is training these disciples upon whose shoulders the entire New Testament church was going to be built. Everything he's about to say, everything he's about to do is, is investing into these men. And he's counting on these men to carry the Great Commission out under the power of the Holy Spirit. When I think about that, I think about you. And I think about me. I think about the fact that that burden is still on us to carry out the Great Commission of Jesus Christ. He's depending on us to be moved in our heart and moved in our mind with a passion and a compassion to get the job done. If you don't do it under the Dakotas, no one will, right? If you don't do it, if you don't carry out the great commission of Christ, no one else is going to get it done. 
And Jesus is inputting that vision into his disciples, into these men. Now, I want to give you three words today as we walk through this text that kind of help us understand all the ways that I see this text breaking down and what he's saying. Number one, I'm going to give you the word ministry for just a minute. In verse 35, it says, Jesus was going and he was teaching and he was proclaiming and he was healing. He was teaching in the gathering places. That's what we do when we gather in churches, isn't it? We teach as we gather the believers together and we pour the word of God into their lives. The best way to do that, in my opinion, is just what you just heard in the message a few moments ago. Brian did a phenomenal job of taking Revelation chapter 1 and walking through it verse by verse, walking through the text and letting the text say everything he was going to say. I think this man has learned something about preaching, and what he's learned is we don't really have anything to say on our own, do we? (laughs) Everything that we have to say is worthless in light of what the Lord Jesus Christ himself says through the word of God. I love what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 4 where Paul is exhorting Timothy. In verse 13 he says, until I come, until I come and be with you, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Read the Word of God. Exhort people to put it into their life. Teach them what it means. When I'm not pastoring and preaching on a Sunday morning, I visit other churches. And I'm dismayed what I see and hear when I come to some of these churches that are well known. Some of them quite famous. And what I'm watching and hearing is an absence of the Word of God. Man, that bothers me. Because if we don't have the Word of God, we have no power. And if we have no power, nobody's transformed. And if nobody's transformed, what are we doing here? Amen? The Word of God is so incredibly important. Jesus gathered his disciples together, and he was teaching them the Word of God. He was also preaching in the public places. If you read on, it says he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The word preached there is in the sense of people sharing good news. This is not just Jesus standing on on the mountain there, the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus conversing with people about the gospel of the kingdom. I want you to remember that Jesus was not just a preacher. And I want you to remember that you're not just a preacher. I want you to remember it's not about the platform and it's not about the stage and it's not just about the message that you proclaim as much as you love doing it and you should love doing it. But it's about the conversations you have with people along the way with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus conversed with the rich young ruler. He conversed with Nicodemus. He was with the woman at the well and he had this amazing conversation with her one-on-one that led her to go back to her village and say, come see the man I've met who's told me everything about my life. Could this be the Messiah? Jesus was involved in conversations, gospel conversations with people that led them to understand who he was. I want you to see that the ministry that Jesus had was not just preaching in the gathering places, but also he was, he was giving the good news in the public places. It's so important that we tell people what we know about the kingdom of God. You know, preaching the gospel of the kingdom is preaching good news. Good news. Do you think anybody today needs good news? I mean, all I'm reading about is the bad news. I'm reading about the bad news that happens in our nation. I'm reading about the sex trafficking problems that we're, ha- that we're seeing happening in huge metropolitan areas. I read about ISIS and the beheading of Americans overseas. I read about immigration problems. I read about governmental problems. I read about uh, financial problems. People are being inundated with all these problems, but the gospel of the kingdom is a different conversation. The gospel of the kingdom says, yes, there are all kinds of problems out there and nobody's offering solutions except one. And that one person that's offering the solutions is the Jesus of Revelation chapter 1. 
And the reality of your belief that that is true should spur those gospel conversations that happen out in the public places and brings hope to people. I'm talking to people today that have no hope at all. I'm talking to people that are looking for hope and having given up on looking for hope, they're just looking to survive and some of them are pouring drugs and alcohols under their bodies in order just to escape the absence of hope. And you are conveyors of hope. You are the ones that have the answer. You're the ones that can have those conversations that bring people to a realization that Jesus Christ can change their life. He was preaching or sharing good news in the, in the public places, and then he was ministering to needs everywhere, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. There's the feeding of the multitudes. There is uh, the, the, the story of the Good Samaritan. All through the Gospels, Jesus is meeting needs. I think it's interesting. This is the key point of what Jesus is about to say. I think it's very interesting that the God of the universe, Jesus, God in the flesh, the God of the universe, has no greater priority at that moment than meeting the needs of hurting people. You know what the institutional church has failed to do? It's failed to remember that hurting people are its target. We failed to remember that. We fail to remember that Jesus came to preach the gospel to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, and to bring healing to the people that can't find healing anywhere. We fail to realize that really the, the people that God has placed around us, those hurting, broken people, they are to be the focus of the transforming power of the gospel. I say all that to you today because Jesus is training his disciples in a ministry form that says, don't forget the people. And the people that you minister to are not just the people in the church, but they're the people in the field where you live. Some time ago when I began pastoring in First Baptist Eulis, I uh, had an experience at a football game. Now, lots of us have experiences at football games, and I was at a high school football game where my son was playing against the number one team in the nation. Trinity High School right next to our uh, church is the number one team in the nation. They have the largest football team I've ever seen in my life. Their front line average, 330 pounds. This is high school football, folks. High school football. Now, I'm 6'5". I weigh 240 pounds, and I'm small compared to these boys. And my son happened to be playing for a high school down the road, which was a bad mistake because, you know. As I were at this stadium... And I, I see many of my church members on the Trinity side of the football field, and I get to kind of hang out with them and talk to them. But then I go over to the other side of the football field where all my kids' friends are and parents are, and we've begun to reach some of those people. So I'm in a stadium with about ten to 15,000 people watching a high school football game, and I have one of those moments where God speaks to you. You know, those moments where God whispers to you. You don't hear him audibly, but it's louder than an audible voice. You know, where it just penetrates your spirit. And here's what he said to me. He said, these are your people. You're the pastor of these people. All these people. And my thought was, well, well Lord, I'd love to have them in our church. I don't know where we'd put them, but I'd love to have all those people in our church. And the Lord just kept impressing. No, it's not about whether they're in your church or not. These are your people. And if you don't love them, and if you don't go to them, and if you don't tell them about Christ or in some way bring a witness to them, then you're failing at your call to pastor this community. You and I live in communities that are largely unchurched, don't we? I don't know what the percentages are here. It's probably 75, 80, maybe worse. Maybe 90% of the people in your community are unchurched. They're still your people. 
they're still your people. Jesus did not just go to the synagogues. He did not just go to the gathering places. Jesus went wherever people were because he was the great shepherd, and you are a shepherd. God began to frame my whole mindset of ministry behind that belief that I am to shepherd this entire community. It's a biblical model. And that means we feed people that will never walk in our door. It means we try to take the good news to people that we know will never, ever visit our church. And it doesn't matter whether it results in church growth or not. What it matters is, are we doing what Jesus has led us to do? I mean, that's the bottom line. And you want one of the greatest criticisms of the church today is that if it doesn't result in church growth, we're just not going to do it. And that's not the model I'm pursuing. I'm pursuing a model that Jesus gave me that says you go to the hurting. You go to people that may never, ever come to your church and you share the love of Jesus Christ. There is a ministry that Jesus shows us here. Then there's a motivation I want you to see today. The motivation is found in verse 36. It says, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. Now I want to tell you these next few moments what I say about motivation is the key to even caring whether your ministry gets outside the walls of the church. You see, the word for seeing here is not the word blepo in the Greek, which means just to see visibly. But it's a deeper word. It's a word that means to gaze and to comprehend. It means to look into the eyes of people and understand something about what's going on behind their facial expressions. It means to look into their lives and look into their families and somehow connect with their heart. And seeing how that heart is hurting. And we can often do that with people we're familiar with. We know their facial expressions, right? Guys, you go home and your wife has a certain facial expression. And you know you're either in trouble or you're in for a good evening, right? You know right away. Because you can read her. You can read her well. She can read you well. I have six children. I know every one of their facial expressions. I know exactly what they're about to say most of the time because I can read them well. But I've been with them. I'm familiar with them. I've got experience with them. But I'll tell you what God is calling us to. He's calling us to look at people that we don't know and to look beyond the facial expression and say, I want to know what's going on inside that person, inside that family, because I've got an answer for them if they haven't met Christ yet. Jesus was seeing the people, and he was seeing them all the way to the depths of their heart. He connected with their heart, and he was moved in the deepest part of his being. There's this great word in the Greek for uh, felt compassion. And it's one of these long words that we often say to impress you that we can say it. I'm not going to try to do that because I'm afraid I'll mess it up. But the bottom line on that word is moved to the deepest heart part of your heart. In the Greek, it would be literally moved in your bowels. Now, that's not appropriate or politically correct or anything else to say uh, today. But that's exactly how they said it in the Greek. To the very depths of the being. I am moved. And Jesus saw these people, and he, he was moved with compassion. And why was he moved with compassion? Because of what he saw. The Scripture says they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. I want you to think about the people in your community for just a minute. The people around your church, the people in the city or the town in which you live. The people in the, in the farms around the places where you are, the ranches near where you are, I want you to think about them for just a moment. If you were to be able to see with the eyes of Christ, you would see that they are distressed and downtrodden like sheep without a shepherd. The word distressed means harassed, just so harassed they didn't know where to turn. 
just so bothered by everything that's going on that they really didn't have an answer for it in their lives. But the word dispirited is one of the most amazing words of all that we find here, and it means to be cast down or thrown down like sheep without a shepherd. Years ago, I, I had a chance to study with a man named Spiros Sodiades, who was, a, who was a, a Greek theologian. He was Greek, and then he knew the Greek, and he was an amazing teacher of the Word of God. And he walked me through a process of understanding what that word cast down means. Now, I, I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma, but we weren't around any sheep. Uh, and I don't know anything about sheep, but he showed me at a, at a ranch what sheep were all about. Didn't have, uh, they don't have enough teeth to be able to, to pull grass or cut grass so they pull it up by the roots. They don't have any defense mechanisms. They, they can't run. They don't have sharp hoofs. They can't defend themselves. And when a wolf comes in to the sheep, that sheep, if he is uh, happened upon by the wolf, if the wolf attacks that sheep, the sheep has only one option, and that is to lay down or to be cast down and to await death. Those people in that day and time understood sheep. Jesus said, Seeing the, the masses, seeing the people, they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. That word picture began to resonate in my mind and heart. I began to see people without Christ in a very different way. Instead of seeing people without Christ as the enemy of the church or as the enemy of the cross or as the enemy of the word of God, I began to see them as people that were just like I was before I came to Christ. I began to see them as people that just simply needed the hope that I needed when I came to faith in Christ, that needed the change that Jesus brought me. The same kind of people that we are, that's who they are. And when we begin to see people like that, like Jesus, it becomes intolerable for us that we allow them to be distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. So, you know what Jesus did, of course? He became the shepherd for them. He became the shepherd that laid down his life, but he became the shepherd that also oversaw them and put a plan in place till every single one of them could know something about Jesus Christ. Let me just say this to you that, that it's been a process in my life, and I can't say that it's always been this way. But over the last few years, God has given me a sense of, of intolerability for people around me that don't know him. In other words, I've come to the place where it's intolerable, where I can't take it anymore. I can't stand it if people around me don't know Christ. My problem is I live in an international neighborhood uh, of 56 homes in my HOA, and only about half of them have names that originated in America. I have Pakistani neighbors on one side and Pakistani neighbors on the other side, both devoted Muslims. I've got four Hindus on my block, four families of Hindus on my block. I, I walk my block every day and pray for them. It's intolerable for me that they don't know the gospel and won't hear it unless I share it with them. And I'm actively engaged in that community where I live, building relationships and sharing the gospel with them because it's a mandate that Jesus put on my heart. But that mandate doesn't come just because we want it. It comes because we are believers and because we're called to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. You and I have to have that kind of mindset or our people Never will. If you don't bleed, your people won't bleed. If you don't hurt, your people won't hurt. If you don't go, your people will not go. And I say that to you with a lot of authority because I've preached and I've taught and I've pastored for years without going. And now I'm preaching and teaching and going. And it makes all the difference in the world. Like sheep, downcast 
and dispirited and distressed. I want to ask you today, have you seen the people around you and do you see it in the same eyes with the same mindset that Jesus shows here? Do you see people and understand that God has placed them there as hardened as they are, as far from God as they are, as the people that you have to focus on, to love, to pray for, and to build relationships? Have you caught that yet? Have you seen that yet? Because until we see that, we're not light. And until we see that, we're not salt. Until we see that, we never move outside the walls of the church and do anything actually in the field where the real lost people are. We don't do anything. And therefore, we're not like Christ, whose ministry was moving outward, whose motivation was hurting people. When I think about Jesus, I think about God the Father and the Word of God, how it reveals the shepherd heart of God. I think about a number of verses. For instance, some of these are verses that we know and we speak all the time. First Timothy chapter 2, where Paul said, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Well, what does it say in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, where it says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. I mean, Jesus and the Word of God is pushing us out of our walls and outside our homes and out of our churches into the places where people literally are. David Platt has become an International Mission Board uh, president, and uh, he's going to do a phenomenal job. This last year he quoted, he had a quote that he shared several times about intolerability. And it was something like, what will it take for the reality of our unreached people groups to become intolerable for us? And that's his passion, that's his burden. But I, I used that line and I, I turned it on myself because I needed to hear it for myself. And I want to ask you that question today. What will it take for the reality of our lost neighbors to become intolerable for us? That it would move us so much that we would spend money and exert effort and energy and change strategy and make decisions that would help us reach those. When will it be intolerable enough for us to change the way we do things and the way we do church and the way we approach life and the way we approach prayer? What will it do? What will it take for that to change? Because the moment that changes, our churches change. And the moment the gospel is prioritized to that level, everything within our walls begins to be transformed because the gospel's power forces everything outward like new wine and an old wineskin is forced outward. And it causes some things to burst and break because it can't contain the power, the outward compulsion of the gospel. And that's what's happening in my church today. We have so prioritized the gospel that everything has to change because of it. And if your church isn't changing because of the power of the gospel, maybe the power of the gospel is not elevated high enough to make anything change. But the power of the gospel will change things, change people, change churches, change pastors the way it's changing me. Motivation. He saw the people and they were hurting. I was in a recent meeting with a group of missionaries and Gordon Fort, who's with the International Mission Board, stood up and gave an amazing illustration. I can't get out of my mind. He was uh, taking off on the ice bucket challenge. Anybody that's alive and ever been on any internet source at all knows about the ice bucket challenge. It's taken the nation by storm. 
Without commenting on that, he simply said, listen, if, if we really, really want to feel the lostness of our world, why don't we take a bucket and why don't we fill it with flammable material, set it aflame and stand in that bucket until the flames die down so that we can fully identify with the lostness of a world that will be separated from Christ forever and ever and in eternal torment and flames for all of eternity. Then maybe we would be moved. Kind of a radical statement. Kind of a radical statement, but it's important for us to feel it. There's a third thing I want you to see about this text, not only the ministry and the motivation, but there's a method. Now, this is where pastors really kind of listen. <laughs> this is where they say, okay, what do I do about this? What, what do I need to do next according to the Scripture? And here's what you find in verse 38. Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few in verse 37. But verse 38, he says, therefore, and that's always there to help us understand. He's about to conclude something. He's about to apply something. He's about to help us see. Here's what you do. The harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. Therefore, therefore, pray or beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Our first tendency in looking at that text is to say, okay, that's it. We just pray. And my response is no, not just pray. But the kind of praying that also allows you to go. The kind of praying that also allows you to send. In Luke chapter 10 verses 1 and 2 you find the very same reference. In Matthew chapter 28 verses 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. This is the Isaiah 6 kind of prayer. Where Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. And his train of his robe filling the temple. And he hears the voice. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, Lord, send me. That's that kind of prayer. The kind of prayer that, that not only moves heaven, but moves you. And moves us to be someone different than we are because of what's been placed in front of us. I do a fair bit of traveling. and I was in an airport. I'm, it seemed like a lot in airports. And in the Atlanta airport not too long ago, a very, very busy terminal in that airport. And I had an experience that I often have and I'm sure that you have this too. As I share this story, pastors all the time come to me and say, you know, I felt that very same thing. I felt in a cafe, I feel in a restaurant or a football game, or I feel it where there are people. And I'm watching people walk by me, going every which direction. They're heading for their gates. They're trying to get to their plane. And I look at them. I'm a people watcher. Any people watchers in here? You know, you just kind of sit around and look at people and wonder about them sometimes. I'm a people watcher, and I'm watching these people moving in every which direction. Now, in my heart, I want them to know Jesus, and yet I realize the reality is most of them do not and will never hear the gospel. Never hear the gospel. Most of them. I want you to think about these words. They will never hear the gospel, ever, from anybody. And yet I know the gospel, and you know the gospel. So I'm watching these people move every which direction. I'm thinking, what can I do? What can I do? I mean, I can, I can stand on a box and start preaching, but that never seems to end well, right? We, we always seem to be escorted out. I can take a box of tracts and I can throw them out and I can take duplicates of $1 million bills and hand it to them as a gimmick and say, hey, read this, man, it's worth a lot. I can do all those kinds of things and those things rarely, rarely do the job. What can I do to impact this crowd? Luke chapter 10, verse 1 and 2, that's what I can do. Matthew chapter 9, verse 38, that's what I can do. I can pray the Lord of the harvest to send out labor. I, as a pastor, can work to equip people to share the gospel. I can teach them to do what I know how to do. 
and I can help them be mobilized. I can send them, not necessarily to another city, but to their neighborhoods and to their friends and to their loved ones. That means that the guy in the traffic jam next to me as I drive to work in the DFW area, that I can't roll the window down and preach the gospel to him. That man will have a friend. That man will have a co-worker that I've equipped to share the gospel with. And that, that friend I've equipped is going to tell him about Jesus. They're going to have high school classmates that learn to share the gospel because of your ministry. And those high school classmates will share with that kid that you'll never see. You'll never have the opportunity to have a conversation with. You see, the plan that Jesus had will work if we equip people. And as pastors, we are in that prime position of equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Pastor, how long has it been since you've equipped people to share the gospel in a way that gives them confidence and boldness to share the gospel with everybody around them? Until we do that, we're not producing the kind of change with the gospel's power that we're called to produce. You know, one of the hardest truths I've ever had to stomach is the truth of realizing that I wasn't fulfilling the ministry that God had called me to. I remember reading 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4, which says, But you, be sober, and do all, endure all things. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. I remember preaching this about three years ago. And I walked through that line by line. But strangely, when I got to the part about doing the work of an evangelist, I didn't have much to say. And I only had about 30 minutes, so I kind of went over that part. Here's what it says in the Greek, and I didn't really apply it too well and moved on to the end of, end of the passage. I knew what it meant to focus on yourself and make sure you're healthy spiritually. I knew what it means to be sober. I knew what it meant to, uh, to uh, fulfill your ministry in many ways. I did not know what it meant to do the work of an evangelist. That line doesn't mean that you are the evangelist. It means you do the work of the evangelist. You do the work of getting the gospel out. It literally means you do the work of equipping people to spread the gospel out everywhere they go. That's what it means. And with that definition that God convicted me that I was not doing, I began to see a change in the ministry of our church. I personally became involved, not handing it off to another layperson, not handing it off to a staff person, but personally became involved in equipping people to share the gospel. And over the last one year, I've equipped 500 people to share the gospel confidently. I say that to you because I want you to know it can be done. It can be done in your church. You start with five or six, and you begin to equip them to share the gospel, however you choose to do it, but do it. You know the gospel. You know the Bible. You know the word of God. What you need to know is that until you equip people to share, then your community will never be saturated with the gospel. The God consciousness will never be what it ought to be because we're not sharing the gospel with people. There is that method that follows the ministry and the motivation, that method of taking people and equipping them to share the gospel. One of the great lines of the scripture was that Jesus took 70 disciples. And he sent them out two by two to do the ministry. They came back and reported to him. That's all I'm doing. And the results are revolutionary. Let me just bear, bear with me for just a minute. Let me share with you that over the last year since I've learned that I'm supposed to do the work of an evangelist, since I'm supposed to somehow equip people to share the gospel, we've seen over 1,200 people hear the gospel and two or 300 people, between two and 300, have prayed to receive Christ on their front doorstep in their homes, in their community, just because we went, just because we went. When will we begin to go? 
The text, the text that we looked at today began with Jesus going. Began with Jesus having a compassion for the community. When will we begin to go? I'm going to leave you just with three lines here to keep in mind. And one of those lines is, Pastor, get a plan. Whatever it is, get a plan. We have so many opportunities, so many ways that we can share the gospel with people. Get a plan. Just get a plan. People are looking to you for leadership. They're looking to you for next steps. They want to know how can we change our community. Get a plan. I don't care what the plan is. Uh, ask Doug what the plan is. Ask the, the president of the convention what the plan What is the plan? Get a plan. And as you get the plan, begin to say, all right, I'm going to begin to drive this into my heart and into my leadership and into my church. We're going to have a plan to share the gospel with people. When I was growing up, I was asked by my dad to go work for a summer in a peanut field. I'd never been in a peanut field. And uh, my dad dropped me off one day. It was kind of one of those growing up moments where he said, son, you're going to work whether you know how or whether you like to or not. Fourteen years of age, he drops me off at a peanut plantation. The, the guy who was the manager of all these teenagers that were out hoeing weeds that were growing up around the peanuts was one of the biggest men I ever saw in my life. He was about 6'5". He weighed about 400, 425 pounds, I think. I mean, literally 425 pounds. Nobody ever argued with these guys. I mean, this guy was a mean guy. He didn't have much to say either. I got there late that day, and I said, what am I supposed to do? And he nodded over at a, a pile of wooden-handled hoes. And he said these words. This was all the training I got. He said, grab a hoe, pick a row. That's all he said. Simple, to the point, but it connected with me. I was too afraid to do anything else except grab a hoe and pick a row. You know, with simplicity, let me just say to you, that's what we as pastors need to do. Help people know what is the utensil they need. Pick a row and begin sharing the gospel. Wherever that is, whoever it's with, get a plan. Second thing I say to you pastors is lead the way. Lead the way. I've come to the conclusion that I could pass this off to somebody else, but it wouldn't get done if I wasn't leading, if I wasn't going. Last night I flew in from Dallas-Fort Worth and I picked a late flight because we go out on Wednesday nights and share the gospel. We have more than 250 people that go out every Wednesday night, and all we do is share the gospel with people in the community. And, Doug, I wanted to wait until that was all over with before I got on a plane. That's why he had to come get me at 1 o'clock in the morning at the airport because I did not want to miss the key event in the week of our church going out and sharing the gospel with people who desperately need to hear it. Pastor, lead the way. Third thing I say to you is, Pastor, pray like you've never prayed before. Pray the Lord of the harvest to raise up workers for the harvest. Over this last year, I've watched God answer my prayer about the gospel in more powerful ways than anything I've ever experienced. And here's what I believe. I believe that if we pray for the gospel to spread, God will give us more favor than if we pray anything else in our lives. And here's why. God loves the gospel. It was determined from before the foundation of the world that Jesus would die. This is something that's close to God's heart. Pastor, pray for the gospel to spread and pray for people to equip to spread it and watch God answer your prayers in a supernatural way. Some of you will go away from this today going, you know, I'm not sure if I could do that or if I'm going to do that. But I want to encourage you that if you begin to pray for God to give you a way, give you a plan, if you get, begin to pray for God to show you the power of prayer when it comes to the gospel impacting your community, you might be amazed 
at how God answers that prayer and how he uses you to change the world from where you are with the power of the gospel. There is no lacking of power in the gospel, is there? There's only the lacking of its being spread. Let's change that for the sake of those that will never hear unless you make it real for them. Father, today I thank you so much for the incredible and amazing responsibility we have. What an awesome thing that you have given us this treasure in earthen vessels. And Lord, when all is said and done and we stand before you, we want to be able to say to you that we did everything we knew to do, everything we could do to get the gospel out. And we want to hear from your mouth, well done, good and faithful servant. And I know these pastors and these leaders serve in very challenging areas. And I know their resources are limited often. And Father, I know that you're also able to raise up resources and you're able to raise up people to help bring about what you've said is the heart of you. And that is that people would know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Father, answer prayers in a powerful way. Give us the ability to lead in a powerful way. God, give us the fruit of laboring in the fields. Thank you for these leaders in this room. I pray you'll bless their lives in a great way. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.